but you're sick and people don't it's so misunderstood people don't see that so it's the majority of the population like this guy's a real asshole mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood we often struggle in silence but there is hope for a better life i'm trevor steinhauser and this is stigmatized Today, I've got Daniel Henderson here. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, no problem. You are a walking, talking miracle, and I can't wait to hear, and everybody else to hear about your journey because it's it's an incredible one. And you're only 22, so you have had a life filled with incredible challenges. You, you struggle with addiction. You had a traumatic brain injury, which is, was just a little over a year ago, right? Yes. But this is ultimately a story of your will to live incredible strength and a little bit of being in the right place at the right time exactly yeah so where'd you where'd you grow up i grew up in Cincinnati, ohio a suburb of Cincinnati, ohio called blue ash which is like 20 30 minutes outside of downtown depending on traffic what time you you know you leave rush hour it's going to be of course take more time to get downtown or to blue ash but i grew up in blue ash a nice suburb of Cincinnati, ohio what was life like in your early years? Early years, when I was a little kid, it was it was a lot of fun. I grew up playing soccer. My dad was uh, a star soccer player in high school. We both shared the love of sports, anything active, anything outside. So from a young age, I started playing soccer. I played rec soccer. Then I pay, played club and played that all through high school. But I also, my family was huge in the outdoors and fighting off the beaten path spots. So from a young age, I started backpacking, rock climbing, hiking, canoeing, going to the ocean, going to Lake Michigan, uh, boogie boarding, anything outside, sledding when it snowed. So I was always outside. And I also was extremely hyperactive. So... All of these outside activities helped call me down, but in school, it was hard to sit still. That I was always mischievous. Great sense of humor, but I took it too far a lot. But um, I definitely learned a lot of lessons from doing that. But with that, I always had good grades for the most part until high school, like midway through high school. But I got in trouble a lot in school for doing just stupid stuff like I brought a fart machine to choir class <laughs> which is funny um, I asked my one of my teachers to read a book called Walter the Farting Dog in front of the class and she just I got trouble for that um, I did all sorts of stuff I we had a, um, a project where we had to bring pumpkins to school for something called mole day and chemistry and i took all the pumpkins hostage and left a ransom note and hit them and the, i got in trouble for that so it was just like doing pointless stuff that was harmless but it got me in trouble because i had too much energy and i couldn't sit still i can relate to all that played soccer i was not an outdoors guy but i was a total spaz when i was little too and hard to rein that in sometimes when you're when you're all jacked up and got nowhere to go with it. So when did you start going down the road of alcohol and drugs? I started 
in seventh grade, so when I was uh, 13 about, and it was, I was fine that I was just experimenting. But I was having some issues within my family. My dad is was diagnosed at 24 with an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome. It's more debilitating than MS, but it's very un, understudied. And plus the name's just bad, chronic fatigue syndrome. There's a name, it's M-E-C-F-S now. I forget how to, the M-E part's really hard to say, so I can't pronounce it, which I should be able to, but I keep trying it. I keep, I'll pronounce it one day and I'll mispronounce it the next. But it's a much more scientific name, but it's way more than fatigue. It's a lot of uh, nerve pain, brain fog. It's part neurological and part autoimmune. It affects multiple organs, and most people are not functional. He was functional for 20 years and then became disabled. Today, he is bedridden. He's been bedridden for the past 10 years. He could like wake up, go downstairs, cook a little breakfast, but that even tires him out. He trades stocks during the day when he can. Uh, but with that, um, I started to struggle. He became disabled when I'm 13, like 12, 13-ish. And my parents had a lot of arguments and fighting. Plus, I was hyperactive. And just my brain never shut up, so I struggled with anxiety. And I started to use drugs and alcohol at the time. I was smoking a lot of weed. Um, and this is what age? 13. 13. I was smoking a lot of weed at the age of 13 to take away the anxiety and some of the pain from my parents fighting because I I was always, my dad and I liked the same things. So we were always backpacking in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. We would go to sweet vacations in Florida, on Lake Michigan, out west in Oregon and Washington State. Um, and then instantly I was taken away. And then with the hyperactivity, the anxiety and my parents fighting it wasn't easy so that affected me yeah emotions and yeah stuff i didn't know how to deal with for a young age i mean that's young i mean 13 that's 13 to be able to to try and work through all that stuff so i can imagine how that all went down and then uh i played i was really driven i played high level club soccer and ran across country seventh grade and eighth grade and I was on a travel soccer team. Uh, it was associated with the Columbus crew. So they pulled kids from, it was called Cincinnati United Premier, from Cincinnati United Premier to play in their academy team in Columbus. So I, uh, a couple times a season, I would go up to Columbus and play with the academy. I never played on the academy, but we would I would scrimmage them and stuff. We were the same leagues. But... So, you know, I used sports and other ways to deal with it. I was highly active going into high school. I won state science fair freshman sophomore year. I owned a small environmentally friendly law crew called EcoCare. Uh, I was well-liked. I always had multiple girls to hang out with. Girls were never an issue. Had a lot of fun, but definitely partied. It definitely struggled with mental health outside of addiction, meaning anxiety and depression and self-esteem. I always, for whatever reason, with all that stuff, had a low self-esteem. But you turned a lot of this 
into a kind of a positive, I mean, you're driven in a positive way with your, your business and academics as opposed to being, going the other way and being a, a problem child and, you know, in school and stuff like that. Yes, but that took a lot of time and a lot of effort. Uh, starting beginning of junior year, I just, my grades were decent. I was taking a few AP classes. I uh, was playing soccer, but I did make varsity because of drugs and alcohol. I, the coach definitely knew, and my play was becoming affected. And I started into the second semester of junior year becoming suicidal. I tried to kill myself two times the second semester of junior year. I stopped showing up to school. I started just smoking weed and drinking my brains out. Alcohol is my drug of choice. Going into the summer, I had another suicide attempt, and I was just miserable. I was stealing money, foraging checks from my parents, my brother, my parents' friends, um, and all the stuff they had and worked for. I had a scholarship to Ohio Wesley University. That was gone from science fair. So my GPA, I had to maintain a certain GPA to keep that scholarship. My GPA just dropped. Um, and then I lost a lot of my friends. No one wanted to be around me because I was just an asshole. An active addiction, you're selfish. You're cut, you're pretty much a dick to mm, everyone. Total dick, yeah. Uh, you're discontent, you're irritable, you steal. You're just, you're just kind of a sleazeball. I mean, you are, you're just, but you're sick and people don't, it's so misunderstood. People don't see that. So it's the majority of the population. Like this guy's a real asshole. Right. Uh, so no one wanted to be around me because I was just lying and stealing and doing all this other stuff and going in and out of psych units. Now the attempts to take your life, was that just pure loneliness and mental health being by yourself or were they, were they all, were you under the influence when those happened? I was not under influence. So everything was just crashing down on you emotionally. Yeah. I drank bleach twice. Wow. And then the other time is kind of a suicide attempt. I did it for more of attention. I did all of it for attention when it comes down to it too. But drinking bleach will probably kill you or screw you up. I'm lucky it didn't do anything really to me. It felt fine, but they had to keep me over like for a couple of days in the hospital. So hurt to myself and others, and they were making sure nothing happened to any organs, right. which it didn't. But I put a knife to my throat in front of my mom and told her to F herself and said if she didn't leave me alone, I would slit my throat um, in my basement, in the laundry room. So I, I've pretty much forgiven myself to that for that but i will never forget her face and that's where mental health and addiction took me was i grew up in a nice suburb of blue ash had everything going but it does not discriminate and for me i had the genetic predisposition for both the mental health and the addiction so with that it's just like you know if you got if you are untreated, it's just like you have cancer. You get worse. It's progressive and fatal. So with time and the right, I went through a lot of treatment centers and a lot of psych wards throughout the U.S. because I, I did run away. But once I found the right treatment, I learned how to 
maintain good mental health and sobriety on a day-to-day basis because it's all daily maintenance. It's You're never cured. Right. It's just, it's chronic. And you just learn how to cope and do tools to deal gotta, with life when yeah. life happens. You got to keep your foot on the gas every day. Yes. Uh, if you ever say, I'm no, I was an alcoholic, I'm not anymore, that's the kiss of death. And a lot of people think that, but you got to, it's a grind. Every day is a grind to, to keep yourself straight mentally and uh, you know the physical urges which i try and tell people in early recovery that it subsides it doesn't come as often it doesn't last as long as you get further into your recovery because in the beginning it's pretty pretty daunting proposition to be happy in sobriety so in recovery because i think sobriety and recovery are two totally different things did you go to a 28-day program or anything like that I went to a 90-day program 90 day, okay. inpatient called Balboa Horizons in Southern California, Newport Beach. Um, and then I did six months outpatient. Out there? Yes. I changed everything for two years. I ended up living out there. Which is huge. Which was pretty kick-ass at 19 years old, 18, yeah. 19, to be living, living in Southern California, surfing. Definitely attractive women everywhere. So, yeah. But getting away... Two, yeah, getting out of your that's own. all the fun stuff. But getting away, it was the there's a huge Orange County is a treatment hub, and especially for young people, there's a huge young people's community. There's and there's tons of twelve step programs. There's AA. There's cocaine anonymous. There's narcotics anonymous. There's heroin. There's a twelve step program for literally everything right. these days. They're all right there. Then you got smart recovery, recovery, refuge recovery. You got Surfing groups that are recovery. You got people go to sober sober concert groups. So you got pretty much everything, especially if you're young. And you got really sweet. You got beach meetings on Sunday mornings on the beach. And if the waves are big, you know, I went to like half of it. And then I was like, you know, I got to go to the water. Uh, but, you know, you can't beat that. You can't really beat that at a young age. I I believe you have to be, you know, if you're like me, and a lot of people are who party, they have a little bit of an edge. Um, and they're like, you know, if I have to sit in therapy at AA meetings for the rest of my life, why be sober? You want to get sober to have a good life and to have a life that you always wanted and to do what you love to do. So I believe, you know, I work in recovery now. And I believe that, especially for young people, it goes the same thing for older people, middle-aged people, but you have to be incentivized by a certain lifestyle change. Instead of just drinking your brains out or shooting heroin or whatever it is for you, figure out, okay, I'm going to go to treatment, but why? Yeah, I know I have a problem or I'm in denial, but obviously my life's not going too hot right now. But why am I going to treatment? Is it to get sober or is it to have a good life? Which is the difference between, like you said, sobriety and recovery. Recovery is more about having the life you want and being able to not only stay sober, but... Implementing coping skills. Yes, exactly. That, that you learn and that you got you to gotta put them to work every day. I mean, you, it's so... It's easy. Have, you know, all it takes is a split second for the guy on your shoulder to 
just peek in and say, hey, man, fuck it all. But you got to, that's where the coping skills, you got to be able to talk yourself down. And yeah, so it's yeah, two totally different things for sure. Yes, exactly. So you got sober at 18? Yes. I think that's unbelievable. I think if I was given the chance, because I got th- sober at 37, and it took me a long time to get over. How old are you now? 41. So it, it took a long time for me to, to get over that, you know, why are you know, why did it take so long? You know, you're a grown man. and But if I was presented that opportunity at 18, when I was smoking weed every single day, I just don't know if I'd been able to do it. But I mean, that's just, that's all speculation. I just think it's really impressive that you're able to shut it down at 18 when, when really people's social lives are just, just ramping up. So that's pretty, pretty awesome. I want to talk now about the days and events leading up to what happened in Utah and your hiking trip. Okay, so I don't remember a lot of the days leading up. I remember mm. bits and pieces. But what brought me to Salt Lake City, Utah from Orange County, California was most people don't know this, so I'm definitely going to share this because it could save some lives, is as I said, sobriety is different than recovery. And you have to learn new tools to deal with life. And so it's, as I said, it's chronic. You learn, you continue to learn even 20 years sober. You're going to, things are going to happen. You probably don't know how to deal with. So you're going to have to seek out help and ask, say, you know, I'm struggling with this. How do I deal with this? So I started to struggle with mental health, a complete outside issue, like really bad anxiety, depression, interpersonal relationship issues. Um, in sobriety, and I ended up uh, basically thinking about killing myself and then putting myself into a psych unit in Los Angeles when I had a girlfriend. I went to a strip club for whatever reason, thought about drinking, and thought about killing myself. I had a girlfriend, so I felt like shit for going to a strip club. And she was, I was near long distance from Southern California to Cincinnati. So I didn't really know how to deal with that. Cause I, that was my first girlfriend recovery. Plus she was really attractive and it was long distance for like a year. So my head was going to the wrong spots. But a lot of the times with this, this is a tread around. I was around two years of sobriety. I just took two years in between two to three years is when a lot of the underlying issues pop. I had a really good clinician tell me that when I was working in the field of addiction and mental health, but this was with primary mental health when they told me that. So they're more mental health focused and the underlying issues are more mental health focused. That's separate from addiction. But 90% of people who have a substance use disorder suffer from co-occurring disorders, such as anxiety, depression, PTSD. That's why we, co- we cover up with whatever makes us feel good. Exactly. It's the medicine that stops working. Mm -hmm. So for me, what brought me to Salt Lake City was I had a mental health breakdown. I was sober, but I had a mental health relapse, which I stayed sober through all of it, which is good. But in order to continue to stay sober, I had to do another 90 days of inpatient, a lot of outpatient, I think around six months too, which saved my life. Today is... I was the best mental health spot of my life. But after that, I went to work for Wasatch Crest 
treatment center in Park City, Utah. And I, my car was in Southern California, so I flew back to get it. So I was living in Salt Lake City, and I had to drive 45 minutes to Park City, and I was catching rides with people who lived in Salt Lake who also worked at the treatment center I worked at. So I flew back to get my car, drove it back to Salt Lake City, and then, of course, the day I... <laughs> Like a couple of days after I get my car back, I love hiking. I love the outdoors. I pick up a friend who suffers from cluster headaches. His name's Wes, and those are awful. Uh, and he was depressed because he can't go outside. The light hurts his eyes. He, his headaches are just... They make people want to kill themselves if people do kill themselves because of cluster headaches. That's how bad they are. So he was coming out of a cycle of cluster headaches, and I said, let's go hiking because we both love the outdoors. So we went hiking. He picked the spot, Lisa Falls in Little Cottonwood Canyon, Salt Lake City, Utah. We went hiking and then we were at, we were on like a trail near the creek that was on the side of a cliff and the ground just broke where I was. I was in front of him and I just fell with it 200 feet. Not vertically, I hit a bunch of stuff, rocks, trees, creeks. I don't really know what, but that's what I was told. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember any of that, but I've seen footage from me getting rescued. It, it was, uh, they said I was out there for three and a half hours before search and rescue got to me. My friend had to leave me. When he got a visual on me, he thought I was dead, but he got closer, he could hear me breathing, but barely, my lungs were clapped, so it's all bloody. And he was, I was the right person at the right time. He was trained in search and rescue. So, you know, I was hiking with the right person, definitely. And uh, he uh, used his phone to call search and rescue, and Verizon Wireless got service in the middle of nowhere, which is, I definitely want to make a commercial for them. They saved my life. Search and Rescue got there. He had to leave me a little bit to find Search and Rescue. Because uh, you were virtually in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. Their phone that was meant for, to use this, or to be used for this situation didn't work, but Verizon's did. So they asked to use my friend's phone to call the helicopter, which that's the best real life account they have. So I'm definitely going to call Verizon up soon. Shoot them an email and say, I want to make a commercial for you guys, which I think they'll definitely take up. But... um. Yes, they. I was really far out there. I was. It took them three and a half hours that I got put in a stretcher and helicoptered out the side to the side of the road where they put chest tubes in my chest. And I have two cool scars on my chest from chest tubes because my lungs were collapsed and filled up with. I guess they drained the. I guess there's liquid or or something. Mm. It drained it with tube that filled up with oxygen. Then I flew to the hospital. I, uh, right when I got to the hospital, I had a stroke and a heart attack, um, I guess. I don't clinically know, but I'm guessing because my body was in so much shock. And they, I flatlined for, I I don't even know, I think a couple of minutes. And they were trying to bring me back to life. And uh, they shocked my heart back to life with paddles. That I was in a coma for three and a half weeks because I had a traumatic brain injury. So my... The both both of my hemispheres of my brain shifted a couple millimeters. So I structurally damaged my brain. All those pathways were broke. Like every time you tie your you learn something like tie your shoe, 
you create a pathway. So I had to relearn how to walk, tie my shoes, how to go to the bathroom, um, how to brush my teeth. I thought I was 18. I was 21 at the time. Now I'm 22. So I had to relearn literally everything. I called the wrong girlfriend. <laughs> Just kind of funny. Well, that's, you know. Yeah. Extra, some extra sympathy. Yeah. They had, on that news story, uh, they showed the video of them pulling you up in the helicopter. And to hear these first responders talk about how it was the most complex, severe, and intense case that they've ever been a part of, it just puts in perspective what you went through and how far that fall was and how lucky you are to to be up there and then you said that you landed in the for what the injuries that you had you landed in the best hospital in the country with the best doctors that could deal with exactly what you had yes the uh i had dr gregory harlick unfortunately he left a couple weeks ago he's from canada back to canada to work at a hospital there um but we email oh cool every probably like month or so I probably met him, but I don't remember. <laughs> but he's the best doctor, him and another guy, right? All the protocol and run labs for traumatic brain injury and spinal cord trauma. They innovate and want to make things <clears throat> better for people who suffer from spinal cord trauma and TBIs. And he produces results like me. I'm not the only one. <clears throat> I, there's another guy named Eugene. He's, I was in the neuro ICU with him. He's one month ahead of me in his recovery. It takes about two years to see the most of, most progress from a traumatic brain injury. I have a little over a year out. Yeah. I work 80 hours a week. I can run a sub six minute mile. I run my own business. I also hosted a restaurant on the side for the extra money. So... You're an Fine. You're an anomaly. Yeah, but Eugene is in school getting straight A's. He's getting over 100% in his test because he gets the extra credit right. He's back to skiing. Now he doesn't do anything bad, like really like risky. And it is summer. He's not skiing right now, but there's still snow in the mountains in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, but he skied all winter. And he skied before he was a year um, out of a traumatic brain injury and he's rock climbing he's driving he's doing all those things uh we had the same type of tbi which is called the diffuse axonal injury which is means your the two hemispheres of your brain shift and that's the most severe version this the recovery rate of having a functional life is 10 percent. it's less than 10 percent to pretty much be the same there's a couple things that are different the only people who would know me really well would notice in myself because I know myself. Right. But, but you were convinced that being in the hospital where you were saved you from being in a nursing home. Yes. If this would have happened in Cincinnati, Ohio, I would say I would 90% chance be in a nursing home uh, because the care at Cincinnati, Ohio – I'm helping a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries because no one really knows where to turn now. Uh, I go visit them at the hospital. 
I give up my experience. I don't know anything clinically, but I went to a really good neurological rehab in Chicago. They've been ranked number one in the world 28 years in a row. They're called Shirley Ride Ability Lab. Best clinical care I've ever seen and probably will ever see in my life. Dealing with a TBI, you have short-term memory loss issues, and they give you a bunch of coping skills that anyone could use. Um, like when you're at school, you you use pneumonic devices, stuff like that for people with a traumatic brain injury. Like there was this thing they use called RAPS, and W stands for write it down, R stands for repeat it, A stands for associate it, P stands for picture it, S stands for sort it, which is a great tool. Like if you're trying to remember a, a list on how to associate certain things with each other, picture words, uh, like if it says Mount Rainier, you got to remember about picture mountain. It's, I mean, as simple as it sounds, it goes so far to write everything down. It's a great time to have better memory loss because of technology yeah. and Google Docs. I back everything up to Google Docs, my calendar, a Google Calendar, and set alarms to my phone. So I take these coping skills and I bring them to hospitals like Drake in Cincinnati, which really isn't that good. Um, they're they're pretty bad, to be honest. And there's one place I've seen that's really, really good, and that's the Select Health Unit under Bethesda North in Montgomery. They're fantastic. The people really care. Um, they go the extra mile for the um, each patient, and I've talked to the nurses there, the doctors. I've met with multiple families and patients, the majority of them are barely awake or in a coma. But talking to their family and giving them the authenticity of my experience, and I've been on the news a couple times in Cincinnati, I put all these people on GoFundMes. Having a traumatic brain injury is not cheap. I had one. Um, so I always put their news reports, or always put their GoFundMes in the news reports and advertise them on my company's social media, my personal social media, and do everything I can to increase their funds because I know how much it sucks to see your loved one and the doctor saying it's he'll be in a nursing home if he doesn't get the proper care. And to get the proper care, you need a lot of money. But just telling your story to those families has to give them an incredible amount of hope. It does. But with that, I always say, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything clinically I, about a traumatic brain injury. I just had one. And the brain you go to a TBI with is usually if you get good clinical care, the brain you come out with, meaning if you're in good shape, mental shape and physical shape, both those things have a big component. I was in both. I was also sober for a long period of time, over three years. I ate healthy. I was had a good, you know, I was definitely in good shape. I was lifting, running, climbing big mountains. So I let them know that. But I also say every brain's different, which is true. Every clinician will tell you that. I can't, I don't, no one's, everyone's going to say that. There's, I, it's way too early to ask for a prognosis. Sure. I let them know that for most cases. And plus, don't, don't base this person's recovery off of me. One thing I found extremely interesting when we talked last week, and I don't know if you could pinpoint whether it was the injury 
or putting your coping skills to work, but you said your anxiety virtually disappeared. Yes. It's not my coping skills. It's, I don't, I had anxiety before and I knew how to deal with it. But now I mean what I'm saying that I have no anxiety. It's virtually God. I've had a tiny bit of anxiety over the past year, a couple of months I've been out. It shows how much we know about the brain. We know nothing. We know more about the depths of our oceans than we know about the brain. I structurally damaged my brain. And what I was told clinically, I don't know what lobe it is, but I hit the right lobe. It damaged it enough that it took away my anxiety. I also damaged the lobe that controlled my moti- controls motivation, which I could tell about that. Now, I'm still extremely driven. But with that, um, I had two seizures back in January. And I got cleared about a month ago to get my driver's license because you have to wait for a period of time and I got anti-seizure meds It cleared by a doctor to be able to drive. So now I have to go to the DMV and take my test. But I haven't done that yet, which before I would have been all over that already and now I'm just getting to it. So I could tell slightly that part of my brain is damaged because I would have been so motivated. I don't like taking lifts everywhere, Ubers or having friends or my parents drive me around. But I could tell that's injured uh, structurally. And then also I have short-term memory loss, but that's... In the grand scheme of things, dude, I mean, you're 15 months out of something that I can't imagine a lot of I was of dead 50 months ago, yes, right. for five minutes on the yeah. table at the hospital. I saw, Then I saw your news story... And you said one of the most powerful things is that getting sober was harder than your recovery from this injury. Oh, yeah, it definitely was. This was a cakewalk. I mean, that is so powerful. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, Well, if you have bad anxiety, you'll definitely get this. this. I uh, would have paid someone a good chunk of money to put me in a coma. So you don't, your brain's not active. You don't remember anything in a coma. I don't remember anything. That would have shut my brain up real quick. With the amount of, I remember being in psych wards and having like literally like feeling like I have to jump out of my skin because of the anxiety I had, like just wanting to die. In a coma, you don't have any of that. So now I've actually, it sounds odd, but grateful for comas because I did not have the anxiety I I had. Um, and then it there's there's just like not a stigma about falling off a cliff and a traumatic brain injury and just having a freak accident. Plus, people can see the damage it does. Even though you can't see the structural damage to the brain, there's a lot of broken bones that usually come with a traumatic brain injury. I was in a coma in like a neck brace and a funky-looking back brace that for a month and then when I got out I was really out of it I had to be in a wheelchair for a while um so no one questions it at all everyone's like yeah this is real obviously if he falls 200 feet off a cliff it's gonna hurt he's I don't know how he fought still alive but with the no anxiety that was I struggled with the anxiety I used drugs and alcohol to take off the edge there's no one questions it 
everyone's super sympathetic and empathetic. The no one's like bad at you when addictions see it's people think it's a moral issue, which which it's completely not. Same with mental health. It's a disease. But that's slowly starting to change, but so slowly. With the opiate epidemic, we need it much faster. But the struggles I had, like feeling so lost and so hopeless, and people misunderstand addiction so much and mental health, you do not know where to turn, especially parents. They're like, all these places advertise CBT therapy, DBT, EMDR, 12-step meetings, outdoor rec, like groups, uh, adventure therapy, but how do you know which ones are good? How do you know which ones are ethical? And what can you afford? So my parents, you know, during my struggles, I went through ASAP Recovery in Blue Ash, Lindner Center of Hope, Northwest Passage in uh, Wisconsin, a couple programs in Chicago, multiple psych units, jail. Uh, and they're sending me to all these programs, but nothing's working. So how do you, it's not one size fits all. It's what program for the clinical care and the lifestyle, meaning the activities they give you. And then it's hard to find programs with wraparound services, but they are out there and I do know of them. So you usually need, that's the big gap in the field. There's no wraparound services, meaning getting back to school, job coaching, career coaching, the vocational side of things with activities. So they finally found one in California that matched my personality, my lifestyle, and the clinical care I needed. So I was lost for years in the depths of addiction and mental health. When I was lost, I wasn't really lost at all in this. They knew where they, they had a good place that was highly recommended. They've been ranked number one in the world 28 years in a row. We had a fantastic doctor. In Salt Lake City, everyone was sympathetic, just wanted me to see me do well. And, you know, I was out of it for a while. But after that, you know, things started to slowly click. My brain started to slowly work again. So me beating addiction and mental health, learning how to maintain a good mental state, sobriety, took about five years. This took less than, you know, eight months. Just to, goes to show you the the power of this thing and how much it sucks you into a the abyss and, and for your family and for you, the person going through it, to hear that that's harder than falling 200 feet and going through all that recovery just goes to show hopefully everyone out there that this, this addiction thing is, it is real and it is freaking hard. Real quick, just to go back uh, – he mentioned a couple, Daniel mentioned a couple of things, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy and EMDR, which is, it's some sort of thing with your uh, modality with your eyes. I don't know the exact, what the exact acronym means, but I just wanted to clear those, clear those things up for people that might not know what they are. Now you work, you run your own recovery coaching business and, uh, work in the in the recovery space you mentioned to me that you feel that treatment in this country or in this area is pretty stagnant and you feel that there's a need to innovate what what do you mean by that 
Well, first off, treat that this area, it's Cincinnati, Ohio, the greater Cincinnati area, really the whole Midwest is really, really underserved. It's the center for the, it's the worst for the opiate epidemic, which is, I still don't really understand why it's so underserved. I mean, but I'm working on bringing the top clinicians here and top treatment centers here. And when I say treatment centers are stagnant, meaning there's only a couple that are doing new innovative work but i believe that you can't just say okay you go to x amount of groups per day you uh see a therapist once a week a psychiatrist once every two weeks you go to 12-step meetings at night sometimes smart recovery refuge recovery and you do adventure therapy like twice a week and you learn basic life skills like make your bed. Some treatment centers will take you shopping and you have to budget, learn how to cook. Um, and a lot of people already know to do that, but you need to l relearn things when you get sober because you, you're living really bad. Your life's a wreck. You don't cook for yourself. Your probably house is a wreck, uh, apartment, yeah. or if you have somewhere to live. Yeah, true. But the sobriety rate is not increasing whatsoever i've looked at multiple websites and it's hard to really measure a true sobriety rate for alcoholics anonymous that's the biggest 12-step program out there because no one really there's not a side up sheet and you can't really it's hard to get a true case study from aa but all the websites i found are in between 25 to 35 percent for people who can obtain a year from sobriety. Now, I go to AA. I have a sponsor. I work the steps. But that doesn't mean it can work for everyone. And I don't like what people say, if it works for me, it can work for you, because that's total BS. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not... I go to a few, but it, it it's not the way I recover. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, it, whatever works, whatever works for you, you know, it's about all about finding the right formula for each person. That's what it comes down to. Like, if you do a support group, if you don't, like AA, smart recovery, refuge recovery, whatever that would be, church, yeah. yoga, uh, chess team, I don't care, whatever works. Uh, and then finding activities you like to do and good friends. Your friends, in a lot of the ways, in recovery or just in life or your future. So stick around with good people. Uh, in early recovery, yes, they should probably be sober. And once you get some time sober and learn good tools to deal with life and get comfortable being around drugs and alcohol, yes, you can hang out with people who drink, but be self-aware about how much you're hanging out with them and your motives always have a plan. I always have a plan before I go out with people who drink. Even though they're good friends, they understand my situation. I always have a backup plan like if i feel like i'm about to drink or use i need to get out of there right or let someone know right like i always drive myself i always drive myself no matter where i go because if i get antsy or resentful or pissed off or you know i bail and that's you're exactly right you've got to have you've got to have a plan for every move you make yes yeah, so and the other way is my business is called recover wisely and yes, we do recovery coaching, but we also do substance use disorder treatment consulting. 
it's speaking throughout the United States, but we're rapidly growing and we're diversifying it to outings, events, and products. Uh, with the events, there's a organization called Rock to Recovery that I'm working on bringing to Cincinnati. Although I know the owner, Wesley Gear, he used to be the old guitarist for Korn, and he's in recovery. And he started this nonprofit to bring music into the treatment setting. So they'll bring music into residential treatment centers with big time musicians or just musicians in recovery. And you'll, with your group in recovery, you, in treatment, you'll make a song and record it and put it on SoundCloud with professional musicians. But they also put on sober concerts at big time venues like the Fonda Theater in Hollywood, Red Rocks in Colorado venues like that i've been the one at the fonda theater and what they do is they take all the because there's usually bars at these uh venues they take all the alcohol out of the bars and they have celebrities like macklemore sugar ray people like that cord people that are Cord in, that are in recovery in recovery speak and they play yeah and they bring treatment centers that you know, people are literally 30 days sober and they're going to a kick-ass rock concert, especially for a young crowd. You never thought you could do that sober, but there's no alcohol there. There's big-time celebrities speaking on their recovery, what's the best thing they ever did for themselves. And you're having a great time. And there's like 500, 800 people there. You can't beat that. You're in like Hollywood or Red Rocks in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Like what a... I want to... I'm working on bringing that to... Riverbed, Bogarts, stuff at Madison Theater in Cincinnati. And then for, yeah, the outings, I wanted, I'm want i going to start doing hiking, Reds games, Xavier game, basketball games. Uh, Help we, people learn how to have fun. And, exactly. In sobriety and ultimately recovery. So that's really, that's really cool. Well, man, I have so much respect for you on so many levels. I mean, you are a true hero a miracle um, in the flesh and I, I really am so glad you came and and sat down with me and uh, you're going to inspire a lot of people by by telling your story and doing what you're doing so uh, I really thank you for that oh I appreciate it if you ever want to have me, have me back I more than happy to come back absolutely thanks for listening I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.